Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. everybody to another episode of the Nature Reliance Media Podcast. You see that log over there next to you? Slide on up to the campfire. I've got another story for you. As of late, I've been reading from a couple of books and been sharing some of the information from the podcast just enough, just enough to pick these books up because they're fantastic. I don't want to take too much away from what the author is sharing so that he can get his cut. I actually want to bring attention to them because this is a good book. But again, I'm reading this time from The Hunters of Kentucky, A Narrative History of America's First Far West, 1750-1792, by Ted Franklin Ballou. Before we get into the podcast, make sure you listen up to the beginning where Tracy offers a discount to upcoming classes and all that good stuff. Man, it's, it's already been a crazy year and we are just getting started. Classes are doing really well, and we would love to have you join us sometime so you can get better prepared for all things disaster, survival, navigation, tracking, and all that kind of good stuff. We're training folks from several different states this year and got a couple of dudes that look like they're coming over at the end of the year from England. So we'll see how that goes. Join us for a class, and thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Today, I'm going to be reading from chapter two. Last time I read from this book, I was in chapter one, and we looked at a couple interesting characters there as well. Today, uh, again, chapter two, the title of the chapter is Odysseus of the Middle Ground. Now, you may have heard of Odysseus, who is a mythical figure, if you will, someone of quite interesting significance from my perspective. So I looked him up to get a couple of facts and remind myself of some of the Greek mythology that was out there because I think it lends itself well to the person that we're going to be talking about today who is Christopher Gist. Now, Odysseus, as it's, I read this in Encyclopedia Britannica, Homer portrayed Odysseus as a man of outstanding wisdom and shrewdness, eloquence, resourcefulness, courage, and endurance. In the Iliad, Odysseus appears as the man best suited to cope with crisis and personal relationships among the Greeks 
and he plays a leading part in achieving the reconciliation between Agamemnon and Achilles. Odysseus' bravery and skill in fighting are demonstrated repeatedly, and his willingness is shown most notably in the night expedition he undertakes with Diomedes against the Trojans. So that'll give you a hint about the type of person that we are reading about today. And again, the person we're reading about today is Christopher Gist. Gist, in this particular section, we're going to be reading around the time of uh, 1750. The first date that we have information for uh, on this particular reading is September 11th, 1750. So here we go. Listen up. Christopher Gist's graceful chirography, letters high, arced, and cutting, calligraphic regularity and possessing a kind of literary cadence and his even phonetically re- rendered spelling sent him apart from many of the border men though in cued locks in homespun and leather dress in decorum and dark pocked countenance he much resembled them it's kind of hard hanging with this for me or at least it was for me but basically what they're saying here is this dude's pretty sharp but he's dressed just like what a lot of these folks are calling the savages, the Native American people at that time. Here we go again into the book. Few did not notice him. At 45, Colonel Gist stood 6'2 in moccasined feet, his frame fleshed out to 200 pounds. His size loomed more commandingly when one met him. His genteel, courtly way, in odd contrast to his half-Indian ranger dress and military bearing. Impressive, too were his enigmatic comings and goings and willingness to suffer hardships patrolling the war zone both England and France claimed. So keep in mind here, as far as American history is concerned, this is Craig coming back at you, not from the book. As far as American history is concerned here, we're going to be reading from North Pennsylvania and up to Canada today, that part of the world. Very interesting part of the world that I would hope that people from that section of the country know the history, but those of us who are really into frontier history and looking at it in Appalachia, uh, Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina, and coming into this part of the world, Fincastle County, which became Kentucky, we know that it was a thing up there, but we don't put as much focus on knowing what happened up there, and I think this will give us some insight into it. So here, going back to the book, is this. He reread the dispatch from Thomas Lee, Virginia's acting governor, and the Ohio Company's driving force. Now, let me say before we move forward, you got to keep in mind the Ohio Company is basically a survey company. And what these survey companies were doing in various ways was going out with chains, literally chains. If you've ever seen a civil engineering crew, they would measure out, they would, well, I worked on one for several years there, about, well, two to three years there on a natural gas survey crew, what we would do and what you see on the side of the road is a guy standing there with a transit. It's a really advanced piece of equipment, several, several thousand dollars that shoots out a beam, if you will, of infrared. At least it was when I was doing it. I don't know what it is now. It might all be satellite technology now for all I know. And you'd have somebody else on the other end that would have basically a, a very advanced mirror that would bounce that infrared shot at back to the transit and it record the distance and elevation and all the things that go along with it. Back in the day when this was going on, the Ohio company, Transylvania company, these other companies were doing surveys. They would literally measure things with change and the chains would have a, 
a set amount of length to them, and they would utilize them like one, two, three, four, five chains or what have you would equal X amount of distance or what whatever it was. Now, contact a civil engineer that you know and ask them about it. They'll They'll probably geek out on you to be able to tell you about it. I don't have that much information. But here's what the dispatch said from the governor of Virginia. You are to go out as soon as possible to the westward of the great mountains and carry with you such a member of men as you think necessary in order to search out and discover the lands upon the river Ohio and other adjoining branches of the Mississippi down as low as the Great Falls. Uh, What he's talking about is the great mountains are basically what we call, you know, the Cumberland Mountain Plateau, which contains, you know, Appalachian Mountains, the the Blue Ridge Mountains part in this part of the world. He's wanting people to leave out of Virginia, and he's looking for people to survey and to do any number of things. Now, keep in mind this as well. A lot of these survey crews would have all kinds of people that worked for them. Literally, they were getting paid a certain wage to go out and do these surveys. They had the surveyors, obviously. They would have woodcutters because you had to make these in as good as you could in straight lines to get accurate measurements. And they would have scouts, and some of those scouts were guys like Simon Kenton and Daniel Boone and stuff of that nature. These guys would go ahead of the survey crew and see, uh, you know, what's going on over here. This creek does that. Come back, get that information, and the survey crew would make determinations on what was going on. And they also, and I think uh, in a younger part of my life, this is what I dreamed of doing for a long time, they would have hunters, and all the hunters did was hunt. That's all they did. They would go out and kill critters and bring them back for everybody that was working in the crew. And so the scouts would often provide security while that was going on. They were usually kind of fringe elements. You can think of scouts back in the day the way a lot of scout sniper teams are looked at today in the military. If you're not familiar with them, there's a lot of respect for them, but there's also a little bit of something where scout snipers are kind of off on their own. A lot of people think they're a little bit weird. They definitely were like this during the frontier days because these guys could just walk out, lay down on the ground, eat whatever that came across, and people didn't understand what they were eating, how they were sleeping, how they were staying alive, and on and on and on. So they had sort of a fantastic reputation. So a lot is going on when a survey crew is going out. Christopher Gist, the focus of our particular text today, is one of those that might be interested in doing this. Now, let me get back to the book. What I was just reading comes from, again, September of 1750. Now, we've jumped up. And again, I'm skipping around because I want you to, if this topic interests you, I want you to consider getting the book, and I want to make sure the author of the book gets his due by you purchasing it. But this particular portion of the text comes from October 31st of 1750. Here we go. Woods running, while beset by fever, slowed him, but Gist arrived at Colonel Thomas Crisps at Old Town to make ready for his 1,200-mile odyssey, wrapping oilcloth about the compass and jerk hanks and corn pone, packing budgets, his 17-year-old African hefting bundles onto the pack horse. Gist had visited here as a teen, mustering out for Rangers Mobile, Maryland Militia. Let's break down a few of these words here and make sure that we understand because some of this, if particularly if you're not Southern, you might not know what some of this means. 
First off, he's wrapping oilcloth. Now think about this similar to like wax canvas that we might see in bushcrafting today. These are cloths that were literally uh, soaked with oil to provide some water protection, some wind protection. Basically, it's just some weather protection. And inside the oilcloth, what he wrapped up was his compass. That's pretty important to, to recognize. And jerk hanks and corn pone. Jerk hanks are basically jerked meat. The hanks are basically the ankles of the legs. And so they would jerk these because they were hardy. They didn't have a lot of incredible amounts of meat on them. But at the same time, they would also have a lot of fat too. So you might have, like, if you if you think about processing a hog, for example, the hanks are that those ankles and not the feet. But it could include the ham, the, the entire leg, what we call country ham, for example or a city ham or something of that nature. So there was enough there that he was carrying something like a hank inside of his oilcloth. He might have carried that in Apostle's bag, but more than likely he carried that in or on a horse. He had corn pone. Corn pone, I looked up the definition to make sure I understood what it was too. Here's the definition for you. Unleavened cornbread in the form of flat oval cakes or loaves, originally as prepared with water by North American Indians and cooked into hot ashes. This is something... I don't know that we've done this in a class. We need to have a cooking class for Nature Reliance School where we do some of these old school methods, some of the stuff that I and others used to do in period correct reenacting. I think that would be fun. But you just take cornmeal and add a little salt. Sometimes when we would make it back in the day, we would add a little deer fat to it to kind of form it up and hold it together and then just cook it right on the ashes. I mean, right on the ashes, right on the coals. And you just pick it up, knock the ashes off, and you eat it. It's actually pretty good. <laughs> it's actually really good. Now, you'll you'll note that he had an African slave that he was utilizing to bundle and pack stuff up on the pack horses. Again, not the best portion of our history as far as utilizing a slave, but a lot of these slaves did exactly what these other men did and got the same rations and same sleeping quarters and everything else. So slave or just somebody that worked for them, depending upon who it was, would be uh, indicative of who, who and how they would be taken care of. By what we understand about Christopher Gist, I would say his slave was treated just like one of his own children. Uh, this man was of high caliber. So, and we'll see a little bit about that here shortly. So, carrying on. Opessa, a Piquashawano. In this book, Shawano is another word for Shawnee. Opessa, a Piquashawano shaman. Okay, so Piqua is one of the bands of the Shawnee. And I'm going to interview my buddy Jay Keaton where we teach classes on his property. He's a historian for one of the I believe it is the Piquashawnees, so we'll get more history from him at some point in time. Piqua Shaman O'Shaman, who had fled Ohio during the Beaver Wars and had scribbled his mark on William Penn's Philadelphia Treaty of 1701, had founded Old Town in 1722, where he and his Delaware wife lived under the rule of Wasasunan, Cresip, called Big Spoon for his generosity and had settled in Old Town in 1741 to trade with Iroquois and Algonquin fur takers. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Man, there is a lot to unpack there. But let's try to unpack this. There's so much history in this one paragraph, it just it's kind of hurts my head. First off, Opesa, which is the name of a person, a Piqua Shawano Shaman. Again, Piqua is a portion of Shawnee. There were several different sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects of the Shawnee nation. And Shaman notes that he was some sort of religious uh, healthcare man, if you will, who had fled Ohio during the Beaver Wars and has scribbled his mark on William Penn's Philadelphia Treaty. Penn is the, William Penn is the person that Pennsylvania is named after, as you might guess. And the Philadelphia Treaty of 1701 was a, was a, a treaty to stop the Iroquois and Algonquin people from warring with the whites. Most of the Native American people had a mark, even though they didn't have written languages. They started developing their own style of writing their mark and would leave their mark on many of these treaties. Although, quite frankly, the Europeans that were taking over the the land kind of just crapped on all that uh, more often than not. They had settled here in 1741. Don't forget, we're in 1750 where we're trying to read, but they have, they're trying to give a background for Spoon for this old gentleman, Native American, who had a lot of wisdom. It's really interesting to see that they were there to trade with Iroquois and Algonquin fur takers. So Iroquois, if you're not familiar with this, this is another piece of interesting history that a lot of people don't understand, uh, or at least I find that they don't understand. The Iroquois... You think of Iroquois Native Americans, right? Well, that's not just a band of Native Americans, if you will. It's actually several. It's a confederacy. And there were six different North American Native American peoples that were part of the Iroquois. The Mohawk, the Oneida, Seneca, Odonanga, the Cayuga, and the Tuscarora. And they all lived basically somewhere around southern what we now call southern Ontario and Quebec in northern New York State. So, most people I find from this part of the world where I'm from, in the South, when we think of New York, we typically think of New York City. And New York is a beautiful, beautiful natural state that the armpit of New York City happens to be in the middle of. <laughs> Actually, not in the middle of, but... but New York State is a gorgeous state. The Catskill Mountains are gorgeous. It's a beautiful part of the world. I used to have to go up there for some training in swordsmanship. And the first time I went there, having, you know, there's so many lessons I learned traveling, studying martial arts that have been really good for me as far as understanding history. 
is I had to go up there and do some training and that training sucked, man. It was hard on me, but nevertheless, the first time I went up there, I went into that part of the world, not necessarily Northern New York, but Southern New York in the beautiful part of the state. And it was just, I, quite frankly, I was mesmerized by it. I mean, I was just absolutely mesmerized by it. It was beautiful to go along with this, the Algonquin people, which is a different group of Native Americans, were indigenous people that were living in Canada, again, along the Ottawa River and its tributaries and westward to the north of Lake Superior. So you kind of get an idea where the Iroquois and the Algonquin people were in that, what we would now call southern Canada, northern United States, kind of back and forth. Remember, there's no borders there, really, at this time to determine, hey, this is Canada and, hey, this is North America. So... Uh, that's the people that they're trading furs with in this particular location. Now, I'm stepping up, going on to a different page now, and I want to read something that kind of gives some insight into one of the things that he was doing while he was there. The next day, he axed down some saplings, slashing the ends sharp to jab in the dirt in a circle, and bent them waist high and tied them off to make a low one-man wigwam. He dug a pit at the center. Outside the frame, he stuck struck flint and steel, and blew the spark in the spunk into a flame, fed in tow and shavings, then kindling, let it catch up, then fed in sticks, finger thick, and let that go, and heaped on the logs until fire and smoke billowed forth. Only then did he add the first fist-sized rocks to redden. With sticks he finangled the rocks to the hole. Working quickly, he tossed skins over the frame and pegged the edges, making the hut's inside black save for its glowing center. Taking off his hunting shirt, he crawled in, dragging a full gourd. He sat by the hole, spilling water, and hissing forth him to hurt to the hut's edge, gasping. I was very sick and sweating myself, according to Indian custom, which gave me ease and my fever abated. Now this is good stuff here, you all. This is one of those pieces of insight into Native American health care, if you will, that a lot of the long hunters, the long knives, who Christopher Giss was one of the long hunters for certain, would engage in after learning these methods from Native American people. Oftentimes, if you're a fan of history, you would hear about sweat lodges and sweat wigwams and stuff of that nature for health. And that's what he's doing here. He was sick. I mentioned that earlier in one of the readings. And because he was sick, he was trying to find a way to get himself well because he's getting ready to go on this big old journey. All right. And because of that, he built basically a one-person shelter. These shelters were pretty common. If you've ever seen some of the way these people lived, and this 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 actually is about 15,000-year-old technology right here that we're looking at, meaning they would take saplings, they would bury one end because they wanted to put them exactly where they wanted them. It wasn't like they went out to saplings and just bent them over and part of the tree was still growing. They would cut them and they would dig a hole, bury it, and then bend it over bury the other side as well and tie it all together and basically you had what would look like to us as a wooden infrastructure for an igloo and then they would cover that create a hole in the dead center think of it as a as a igloo teepee if you will there was an opening a lot of people would live in these things this is their living shelter as well now he's using it as a sweat lodge here and he's doing this for his health but a lot of people a lot of native people particularly nomadic people because you could build these rather quickly 
would build these and put them together and then have immediate shelter as best they could, just throw some skins over it that they had kept from the last time they moved and then just bend the poles over and now you got you a setup. There is a, when I was going through the Master Natural Certification, one of the things that popped up in the archaeology section was they have found this, and this really kind of, well, this greatly interests me as a tracker in what the archaeologist was doing and pointing out to us that oftentimes they're looking at levels and coloration of different dirt patterns on the ground. And he had pictures. It was fascinating to me, you all. He had pictures where they had found fields. They would find people buried in these wigwams, like was just described. Basically, they would, instead of having a separate burial ground, if they were going to move and move out and go to a different location, oftentimes, as people died in a community, instead of separating them out over there to bury, they would literally just dig a hole in the shelter that they were living in bury them in it, cover it up, and then when they left, they might take the poles down, take the skins for themselves, but then you would find these little perfectly circular sections of earth that were different, meaning most of them were trampled down very tightly because people literally lived inside of them and laid down and beat down and fixed dinner and all that stuff. And so the dirt in that particular search or that particular section would be compacted he had fascinating pictures of this where you could literally see it. And they had some sort of very fantastic, they're archaeologists, you know, university funded archaeologists. They would have a thing that was very similar to what me and you would think of as being like a metal detector, but it really detected density of soil. And so they would move this instrument across the ground until they found soil that was different, you know, what we would call disturbance in tracking. And then they would study it, and that's where they would often go into a field, and they would find that section, and then they would dig in that section, and that's that's where they would found pottery shards or bones. So it's a very interesting way of studying. It's a very interesting way of living. And quite frankly, it's a pretty usable way of building a survival shelter. I know when we're building shelters for survival, Sometimes, and I haven't done this in a while, and I need to do it. I'll make sure I'll do it in two weeks. I'm teaching a survival class in two weeks. I'll make sure I'll do it again. Where you literally take your tarp, you take a sapling, you bend it over, and you stake it down to the ground, you throw your tarp over that. You don't have to have anything else. You don't have to build some fantastic huge structure. You don't really have to have a lot of cordage for that. You can make that happen without any cordage at all. And so that makes for a really quick and dirty survival shelter. So let's get back to the book. This is an interesting piece right here. This is a couple pages further into the book. Though I was unwell, I preferred the woods to such company. He and the boy set off north by northwest to Beaver Creek after six miles rendezvousing with fellow Ohioan Barney Courant, whose men rounded out Gist Fellowship to eleven, a tolerable number in these parts. Bottomlands butted between the river and knobs, looking to be some of the richest land any of them could remember seeing. The tableland was nearly its equal. It was all very fine. Beaver Creek was running high, so they did not see the sacred petroglyphs carved in the beaver's channel, the malevolent underwater panthers and big winged thunderbirds opposing gods of the lower and upper spheres whose perennially warring spirits guarded the way. The company left the Ohio. These are all 
uh, carvings that were in and around the water. And because the water was so high, they didn't see them. But here's something that he noted in his journal. On Friday the 30th, set out 45 west, 12 miles, crossed the last branch of Beaver Creek, killed 12 turkeys. Tuesday the 4th, set out south, 45 west, about 4 miles. Here, I killed three fine deer. Really interesting to note, to me, he's basically leaving his headings, his compass headings, and his distance. Now, how did these guys get a distance? Well, come to land nav class and let Tracy teach you how to do a pace count. That's exactly how they did it. Most of these guys were not carrying big chains to do uh, literal surveys. Some of them were. Some of them weren't. A lot of them were just doing pace counts and getting rough measurements, and they would draw maps based upon these measurements, and they turned out to be incredibly, incredibly accurate. You'll find some of these old maps today and historical references, and you can lay them down next to GPS satellite technology surveyed maps, and they're nearly the same exact map. It's just, it's absolutely uh, very insightful to me. It seems like the more technology that we get, the less attention to detail we have, and the less situational aware that we are. It's it's interesting to me. So, moving on, uh, further on into the book. Krogan knew Gist's presence boded ill for his interests. Six months before at Old Town, Barney Courant had invited Seneca George, Broken Kettle, and the Stone to barter their peltry to long-knife traders. So again, right here, guys and gals, Seneca George, Broken Kettle, and the Stone are all Native American people. I don't know if it's hard to pick that up just listening to me. Promising higher exchange rates than Krogan gave them. So Krogan, who we, he was introduced in a different section of the book, but Krogan's looking at Gist going, man, this guy's jacking up my trade here. And he's not happy about it. Moving on, this is unquote. A match coat for a buck, a stroud for a buck and a doe, a pair of stockings for two raccoons, 12 bars of lead for a buck, if Carant's offer startled Seneca George, Broken Kettle, and the Stone, it surely startled Red-Nosed Krogan standing at Carant's elbow. Think about it. This dude is outbidding Krogan by a long shot, and Krogan's been doing all this business with him for quite some time, and his business is getting ready to go away. That sucks for him. Gist is who he is. He's evidently a really stand-up guy. And here's a little bit of insight into that. And now, Gist's mission depended upon Krogan's favor and discretion. On Christmas morning, Gist roused himself, pulled on a knee-length shirt, coat, and moccasins, swept aside the kin flap hanging stiff, and stepped into the snow. Behind him, raised atop Krogan's cabin, built at a cost of 150 pounds, hung the red, blue, and white folds of his sovereign's colors. In the muffled, you all know that colors means flags, I hope. In the muffled din of the awakening village, snores, grunts, and voices from the wigwams. Snores and grunts sounds a whole lot like Tracy Trimble to me, you all, when we have classes and he's sleeping near me. He'll like that as he's going through this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> he would say it was me. I'm saying it's him. Let me go back. Snores, grunts, and voices from wigwams. Long, breathy, whooshes upon ash-dusted embers. Axes splintering, kindling. The hollow stomping of hooves and always, always dogs barking. He returned to the warmth, fetched out his prayer book, and leafed through to read about Mary and how the babe leaped in her womb with joy before she knew Joseph and about the innkeeper. 
Now, this is a reference for those of you who are fans of Scripture, and I'm one of those. I'm a Christian. I like when we see these references pop up like this. I pulled it up, Luke 1, 41-44. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you, young woman, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's good stuff my man's reading about here. Very interesting. Let's move on into the book. The sun fully risen, guests walked between cabins and wigwams, prayer book in hand, toward Trader Barney's blacksmith shop. Bernie shied away, but a Wyandotte compassed him about to hear the gospel first proclaimed west of the Blue Ridge at Muskingum. So compassed about means they formed a circle around him, like a compass uh, ring. I hope that makes sense. As Montour interpreted, Gist preached, and with an utterly sincere heart, Anglican notions of salvation by faith and good works, which the king and his church recommended to his children. This is what Gist is doing. He's starting to become a preacher man, basically, and he didn't really want to be, but that's who he is, so he's, he's jumping into it. Here's a word that they named him, Anosana, which is a term for the go-between. He would be to his listeners from this day on, and the crowd honoring Gist with the bestowal of this title of a holy man who had once lived among them. After his sermon, the women and men asked Anosana to baptize their children so that when they died, they might see paradise. Anosana demurred, snared between a duty, theology, and a scalp. He was no minister, he said. And though the one God loved all children, the Wyandotte children were yet unlearned in his faith. Anosana retired to his lodge, and the next day he recorded his secret journal. And I'll tell you about that in a minute, because that's kind of hardcore. I think it's worthy of noting here, you all, that they held him up as, you know, a very, basically a, a preacher man, a religious man. And they're wanting baptizing, they're wanting him to baptize the children, and he's scared that if he doesn't, they're going to kill him, take a scalp. If he does, he feels like he's not doing his justice justice because he hasn't had the opportunity to, to train them in the ways, which I think is interesting. I don't want to go too deep into this, but one thing that I see that I have issue with in a lot of modern churches is that there's no hardcore education anymore. You just come in, you get baptized, and man, you're saved. Once saved, always saved, and all that kind of good stuff. And I think in education and in-depth research and study into the ways of that particular faith is important. It's it was it was just impressed upon me by my first mentor pastor if you will many years ago that being educated and understanding the scriptures and not just blindly following something you don't understand is important. But I digress. Let's go back to cuz this is hardcore. Wednesday, December 26th, that's the day after Christmas. This day a woman who had been a long time a prisoner and had deserted, and been retaken, and brought into the town on Christmas Eve, was put to death in the following manner. Man, this hurts me thinking about it. They carried her without the town, which means he took her outside of town, and let her loose. Basically, if she could run, she's going to get away. And when she attempted to run away, the persons appointed for that purpose pursued her, and struck her on the ear, on the right side of her head, which beat her flat on her face on the ground. They then struck her several times, threw the back with a dart to the heart, scalped her, and threw the scalp in the air, and another cut off her head. Some of Barney Carrant's boys buried her. 
tough stuff, you all. And that's it for what we're going to cover today. I think uh, I wanted to show the diversity of what's happening on the frontier. You've got a preacher man that's got these people that are begging him to baptize their kids, and then they do this to a prisoner. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it is what it is. You need to take the good and the bad and, and try to learn from it from history. So they handled their prisoners differently than we do today. An interesting take. I think it would be interesting if we started doing that again, how many people would continue to break the law over and over and over again. I think it would be, you know, well, it would be what I think it is. I'll leave it at that and let you decide for your own self. Again, I want to bring attention to the book, The Hunters of Kentucky, A Narrative History of America's First War or First Far West, 1750 to 1792 by Ted Franklin Blue. Pick it up, you all. This book is fantastic from Stackpole Books. This has been Craig Cottle with Nature Reliance School. Hoping you're enjoying this little dabble, this little walk into history. And as always, come on, join in. Let's learn together. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Reliance Podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Reliance School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.